Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 45. My name is Edison Magalhães here at Iowa State University. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan here at Iowa State University. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also at Iowa State. And today we're going to cover uh, the SDRS findings for the month of October of 2021, the previous month. But first, we have the pleasure today to have as a special guest, Dr. Bridget Mason. So Dr. Mason is a field veterinarian at the Country View Family Farms and has an extensive background in swine health, uh, food animal production, including animal health management strategies, strategies uh, disease eradication, diagnostics, and biosecurity programs. Dr. Mason, thanks for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really honored to be part of this group and have a really good discussion today about some of the diseases that we've been seeing in the industry. Absolutely. So, to And get we cannot forget that Dr. Mason serves on the SDRS advisory group. Yep, that's correct, <laughs> Giovanni. Yeah, so absolutely. Let's get started. So the first question that we usually do, it's an overall question for our guests. Uh, so what is, in your opinion, the, the value of programs such as the SDRS for the, the swine industry, and how does it help you to make the decisions on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. So I think getting these types of reports for the swine industry are really important because it helps connect people and areas, so geographical areas that may not necessarily see a connection. It helps individuals, especially veterinarians, and production teams to be able to make those connections. So if you are looking, so for me, for example, if I look at the report and I see that Iowa and Minnesota are having a particularly rough year, just from historical value, I know, okay, in about three to four months, what they're dealing with is probably going to end up in Indiana, Ohio. So it really can help you from just a geographical perspective, understand what others are seeing or dealing with. Um, and then certainly hearing the different commentary on it from just the advisory group and then the statistical pieces that can be pulled out, I think are really helpful so that we're not just making decisions or impressions of the industry based on just solely what we're seeing, but actually can say, okay, there was a, you know, a standard deviation increase of X, Y, and Z. So there must be some importance here um, rather than just saying, well, it felt like a bad PERS year. Um, we can actually put some numbers and some teeth to it. Um, so it definitely helps me make decisions in looking at a region and saying, okay, are there different things from a biosecurity perspective that we might want to put in place for our wing to market because they seem to be having a higher prediction rate or a continued higher prediction rate um, for whatever the disease might be. Um, it also is useful to be able to just alert sow farms to, hey, guys, we're seeing this in this area. Um, and we want you to be on high alert and take some extra biosecurity precautions. Yeah. Well, great comments. Thanks for, for sharing with us your perspectives on, on, on this program. So to get started, we will first we will go to the first page of the, the, the report, which is the, the PCR detection specifically for PERS, PERS detection. Giovanni, what, what were the findings from, from the, the previous month in terms of PCR detection of PERS? Well, during October, the detection of PERS rise was quite interesting to see. The level of detection at an overall level was similar to September. But when we look with the details for that, we start to see that the detection in winter market age categories, it's increasing for the second consecutive month. We know that there is activity of 
contemporary pulse value strains like the lineage 1A in regions like this, the uh, northeast, where Dr. Mason is from. But if you look with details in the winter market age category, there was a lot of activity of the pulse virus lineage 1C variant strain. Mm -hmm. And that was captured in our monitoring signals uh, during October for increased detection of this one. So we are pretty sure that a new wave of detection has been formed for this pulse virus strain. And when we ask for our advisory group, what can be done in terms of uh, management of this pulse virus strain, the advisory group reminded us that, well, we need to keep uh, practicing improvement, biosecurity, transportation, biosecurity, truck wash, and try to coordinate with uh, neighbors where we can place these positive peaks, where we can pay, place the negative ones. And the advisory group remind us that tools that we have available, like PERS MLV vaccine, use of feed mitigants, filtering farms, those things continue to work. So we need to be ready for a pro high probability of a challenge per season that is coming out this winter time. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Mason, uh, as Giovanni just mentioned, so we are facing this at an atypical year in terms of, of PERS detection. Uh, the eastern uh, U.S. region has been having increased activity of PERS, mainly the 174s of lineage 1A. Were there any changes in the northeast region that could have contributed to the high PERS activity? Yeah, so I think that is an excellent question because we've been asking that question ourselves um, within our own organization. I think that there's probably not been one huge change that you could point to and say this is drastically different within this region. Um, but if you think about it, in the last two years, we've been dealing with COVID, and I think that's something that still continues to impact the plants um, certainly while COVID was going on, there were a lot of plant shutdowns. There was redirection of market hogs. So there were hogs that were not normally in an area going into that area with, I'd say you could probably confidently say an unknown um, disease level. And so I definitely think that there was impact into that because, you know, certainly from an internal perspective, we were buying hogs from, you know, other open markets that we normally wouldn't have. Um, also, if you think about it in the last two years, there was a huge acquisition of an organization as well as essentially a liquidation of sows. Um, so people are, you, you know, finding hogs from different areas and bringing them into areas that they weren't in there prior. Um, so I think that can certainly, there's been a lot of change between COVID and the plant aspect and then. Um, obviously the acquisition and elimination of some sow herds uh, within our area that we would heavily deal with. Um, also with that, you know, new space has new animals in it. Um, and more and more as you read, tr market transportation and feed transportation play a big role into how we might be spreading some of the virus around. And we've certainly seen that contribute um, to some of our viral load as we are also, you know, selling to different areas um, and working with different individuals than we've worked with before. Um, so I definitely think those are some of the big impacts, at least that we've seen um, that could uh, describe kind of that higher prevalence of PERS activity, as well as also trying to clean up the area. Um, and so then you already, you in 
intentionally sample more animals, right? That maybe in the past you wouldn't. So you're weaned to market category. Um, so if you're trying to and clean up the neighborhood where your sows are, while well, you're probably sampling wing to market pigs much more frequently to understand what their prevalence is. Um, so I know for our system, that can also contribute to what appears like more PERS, but we're basing it off of, we now have a larger sample size versus a smaller sample size. Um, overall, I would say when I looked at the report, um, I didn't specifically note that there was a greater sample size from September to October, um, but I definitely know that 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 can impact what the uh, perception is within a system. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, that's a lot of experience there and lots of field boots on the ground in the field <laughs> to deal with that. So uh, what measures have you been seeing as successful and what measures has been not successful to control and eliminate PERS virus? What can you share with the industry? What's your advice to us? Yeah. Um, so I would say that sometimes I feel certainly um, as a veterinarian, we have more failure, failures than successes. Um, so it can be easy to focus on those, but definitely um, not so much a science piece of it, but more a buy-in piece of it with your team members, making sure that your team members from the power washer all the way to the guy who is loading the market trailer is as invested in biosecurity as the farm managers, the veterinarians, and the production team. Because, you know, your farm managers, your veterinarians, your production team, more likely than not, are going to be invested in biosecurity. Um, but you're going to have more success if your market haulers is invested in it, if your load crews are, and all the people who are doing the day-to-day -day tasks. So we've spent a lot of time focusing on biosecurity awareness and training and observations um, and the biggest failures that we tend to have, whether it's an implementation of a strategy from a health production or biosecurity, is that we fail to get the buy-in from the team and we fail to allow them to be the gatekeeper. Um, and I think so for us, the biggest areas of success that we have had is in implementing different gatekeepers for biosecurity rather than the production team and the veterinarian. It's the farm manager. It's the grower. It's the live haul driver. It's our feed truck driver. Um, and we've actually been able to uh, see that by allowing them the ownership of biosecurity, they will call out our biggest threats for us. And then we as a team can go and figure out, okay, how do we get rid of and remove this threat um, or at least try to mitigate it? So that's something that's been hugely successful for us essentially is allowing, you know, the boots on the ground to own um, biosecurity and prevent the um, incidences that might allow us to be more open to disease challenges. Um, we've also spent a good bit of time um, and a lot of space shuffling to intentionally put very healthy hogs around our sow units. Um, you know, leaving that old paradigm of, well, we're going to try to put this flow's pigs by it. Instead, we might put another flow by another sow farm if they are inherently healthier. So. Mm -hmm. And still related to this and also to something that you said before, that you watch what's going on in Iowa, Minnesota, and then right, you get ready uh, for if the same thing challenges uh, your region. And uh, going back to the lineage 144, so uh, the RFLP 144 of lineage 1C, the variant strain, 
uh, as as you know, it devastated, not devastated, but it, it hit really hard here, Iowa, Minnesota. And there is evidence here in the report that uh, in the system that uh, that lineage was detected in Ohio, right? And so how do you see the region uh, kind of level of preparedness and uh, to to deal to deal with that? Yeah. Um, so it's definitely something that causes us some pause and some concern. Just in general, if you look at Ohio, for example, this year alone, it's you know been three times the standard deviation of PERS activity in sound units alone than what we've seen in probably the previous five years, or at least from my memory. Um, so it's certainly we're nervous about it um, for sure, just because we've seen a higher level of just general 174 activity anyway. Um, so we have taken extra precautions around those areas within Ohio that we're certainly worried about, um, as well as added some downtime and improved our wash capacity. Um, so we've redesignated how we are going to wash markets versus uh, feeders versus wean, gilt, and coal trailers. Um, we already had some segregation, but we've spent a little more time um, adding even in some extra layers there um, just because we do feel that the market haul hauling side of uh, transportation is definitely a threat to us, um, especially with some of the that new strain obviously entering our region where it had not been um, previously detected. Um, so overall, I do think um, particularly this region has a good probability of success mm -hmm. um, as long as we don't spend our time sharing it with each other um, through just essentially poor biosecurity practices. Um, because we do have some space compared to Iowa and Minnesota. We're not necessarily as on top of each other as they certainly are out there. Um, we do have some segregation, you know, just within each organization of transportation and feed. And we also have fairly good communication with um, producers that are in Indiana and Ohio. And I think that was mentioned even within the advisory board group that that level of communication is really important to be talking to your neighbors um, and be sharing information. And so certainly out here, that's something that we do try to pretty actively um, do, whether it's through the ARC program or just picking up the phone and calling each other. Yeah, you know, talked a lot about biosecurity, but once the one particular site, either South Farm or Grow Finish is infected, what are uh, in addition to biosecurity what what are other uh, practices or solutions that can be applied thinking about biocontainment to avoid further spread of uh, infected sites yeah absolutely um, so we do a lot of biocontainment in the sense of once we have an infected site, it's something that goes and, you know, is visited at the end of the week by the service team. It also gets put on the end of the route um, of feed truck deliveries. Also, our supplies are drop ship location. So we don't have a central warehouse where everyone can come and just get supplies um, because that can also be a point of contamination if people are constantly just tracking in and out of places um, to be able to get supplies. So drop shipping is a big thing for us, as well as, like I already mentioned, the markets and um, 
the feed biosecurity. Um, and certainly for us, we also do our own milling as well as using toll mills. Um, so really having good communication with the toll mills. And if we need to switch where tonnage is coming from to be able to protect other, um, whether they're nurseries or stallions or finishers in the area, we certainly will spend the time to do that. Um, we also hold crises calls. Um, so if we detect something that's um, unpredicted or uh, something like the 144 lineage 1C within our system, we would hold a call to especially review all of the mentioned above things, as well as even manure management. Okay, so if because we're getting into pumping season, at least out here. So if we're going to start doing that, where are we taking that manure? Who is taking that manure? And where do they plan on going after um, they, you know, manage that manure? So trying to find all of those little pieces within, you know, and then certainly any medication strategy that you can use to mitigate mortality um, and ideally mitigate, you know, the shed and spread of the virus as well um, is definitely things that we focus on within our organization and region. A lot of layers. Thanks for sharing. Now let's move to the next page, which is the page uh, number two that covers the PCR detection of the enteric coronavirus. Giovanni, what, what were the findings for this month? Oh, similar to PERS, we start to see some activity of PD in winter market age category and in some of the Delta coronavirus. PED, there is a lot of strategies that has been adopted by the swine industry, and the advisory group reminds us that there is no uh, consensus on a single strategy that can be used to contain the spread of this agent. As an example, if you think about intentional exposure. Uh, but the advisory group reminds us that we may be having an opportunity to develop a national plan for control and eliminate PED from our herds, mm-hmm. and still be the big challenge. It's how to quick detect and contain the spread of PD in finishing sites because know-how for South Farms, the industry has been developed in the last few years. Dr. Mason, as Giovanni just mentioned, PD detection was still relatively low in terms of positivity rate in adult South Farms, but some increased activity in this winter market age category. On the other side, Delta coronavirus was very active during uh, 2020, 2021 winter in some regions. So for you as a few veterinarian from a production system that aims to keep it farms negative for this agent, uh, what are your thoughts towards uh, taking a uh, broad approach and eliminating this agent from the U.S. wine herd? Is it possible? What, what are your opinion on that? Yeah, so I think that was a great comment um, from the group about this. Certainly, if you think about any virus that we deal with on a day-to-day perspective, um, PED, Delta, and you know, even probably TGE would be the easiest for us to be able to sit down and actually come up with a plan that we know would work. Um, because we know that there have been systems out there who have successfully eliminated it, you know, at least from their sow population. Um, and probably know what to do to eliminate it from their wing to market, though those strategies might not be currently implemented right at this point in time. Um, So I definitely think it's, 
you know, it's simple to say that, yes, it can be done. Um, but certainly it's important, you know, if it was something to be pursued to just understand the economic impact of, okay, what would it look like to actually go through, eliminate PED and Delta and, you know, TGE out of the U.S. swine herds and what would that economic impact be? Um, because, you know, there's lots of things that are driven through the consumer um, to say, eliminate these. Uh, you definitely would need to just spend some time analyzing and understanding what that economic impact would be, because I definitely think it's doable and we have the knowledge to go um, and implement something like that. Thank you very much. So let's uh, move for the next page, which is the page that covers PCR detection for mycoplasma. Giovanni, again, what were the, the findings from the previous month? Mycoplasma is a challenge agent, for sure. And the months of September to November is the, the period that we expect the highest detection of this agent. So we have been seeing this in 2021. And when we talk with the advisory group, that this reports that there is a great moment of mycoplasma control and elimination that has been uh, discussed across different production systems. So this is some very interesting comments that came out, and we will continue to monitor mycoplasma uh, activity and inform the swine industry about how this agent is progressing during the upcoming months. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Mason, about this idea of control and elimination of mycoplasma hyomony, could you share your thoughts and perspective of dealing with mycoplasma hyomony? Absolutely. So this is one of those diseases that if it is the sole agent that you are dealing with, so you don't have anything else, no flu, no PERS, just the mycoplasma pneumonia, it's actually one of my favorites to deal with because it really responds well to your antibiotic therapy as well as vaccination strategies. Whether it's to do a two-dose or three-dose vaccine strategy, it really responds well. Mortality will um, dissipate and their growth will come back. Mm -hmm. The minute you start to add in, as most of us deal with PERS, flu, and other respiratory challenges, it can really become quite a nightmare to deal with overall um, because you get over your initial insult to only on the back end have to deal with the second insult um, to the same organ. So that being said, that has actually been a selling point to our system for doing true eliminations of mycoplasma because we understand the reality is we're probably going to have another PERS break. Even if we eliminate it out of our sow farms, we'll probably have flu downstream. And those are a lot harder for us to control and eliminate on a consistent basis compared to mycoplasma hyaluronemia. It's not saying that once we eliminate it, we'll never get it back. Um, but definitely it's an easier one to essentially be more confident that you know your routes of entry for that mm -hmm. and you can really prevent entry for a good duration of time. Um, so certainly if you're in a high PERS, high flu dense area and dealing with mycoplasma on top of it, it certainly seems that the low hanging fruit is to try to remove the mycoplasma out. And whether you do that through herd closures and heavy medication, herd closures, vaccination, there's a lot of good industry and uh, information and resources out there for you to be successful. Great comments. Yeah, great comments. Thanks, guys. 
So that was it for PCR detection. Let's move on to the next page, which is the last page of the report and covers disease diagnostic uh, uh, here at Iowa State VDL. Giovanni, what were the findings from the previous months in terms of disease diagnostic? Well, at this time of the year, we have the transitional weather and things that start to affect. Respiratory agents like PERS, streptococcus, and influenza was pretty active during September, October. And there has been some reports of se severe influenza A infection in some closeouts. That's not distributed across all the swine industry, but there was some that was reported by the advisory group. Great. So, Dr. Mason, as a closing remarks here that uh, we usually ask this question to our, our guests, and it's our pleasure to ask you this question also. So how do you envision the future of, of disease diagnostic and surveillance in the, in the swine industry? Yeah, so that's a great question, especially when you start working more and more with diagnostic labs, because the ability to detect is phenomenal. Um, you can really send in just about anything and they can detect it on a PCR basis. Um, so I really think the next piece of that is ensuring that, you know, it's easy to say, yep, I found this but to really understand the relevance of what we've found within that diagnostic sample. So is that PERS, obviously typically PERS is relevant, um, but is it really relevant with the disease challenge that we're seeing? Mm -hmm. um, just across the industry, we've seen a lot of new and emerging diseases mm -hmm. and really trying to understand, okay, so I can detect it by PCR, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, so I think having, you know, again, back to the first question that you asked me when we started, having these reports that really help us understand what are the trends and what are the impacts that we're seeing from these trends um, and then having an industry group to sit and discuss it is really important. And that's really probably the continued future of diagnostics and surveillance, um, because it's really important, you know, not only to just have the information, but then do something with it. Create a loop out of the information, right? Feedback. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Dr. Mason, for, for joining us today. It was a pleasure for us to have you here. Uh, and that was it. And see you guys next month. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.